Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi everyone and welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly mental health podcast. I'm Yvette. And I'm Ellen, and today we're talking to Laura Belbin. She's a woman behind Knee Deep in Life, which you might know from Instagram as the woman who recreates kind of celeb lingerie photos, but more realistic. She's also a mental health advocate, and she's written a new book called No Shame. We're going to be talking to her about why we all need to let go of shame and why that's so important in healing from trauma. I think the thing, the first thing to acknowledge around shame is the fact that everybody suffers with it. And I think that uh, it's to varying degrees. So someone that might be heavily traumatized by their past would probably feel more shame. Um, what I call like the ick feeling. And there is a good reason in some respects as to why we get the ick. That feeling of don't do it, stay here, this is safer. And, and ultimately, our brain is designed to make us survive. It doesn't want us to die. And sometimes it kind of gets those wires a little bit crossed of not knowing, you know, uh, how how to survive. So the, the easiest, safest thing for us to ever do is to just kind of stay within our safe confines, uh, not speak up. Uh, for me, like my personal experience around shame has been, and I, I don't know whether you want me to do sort of, sort of trigger warning before this, to say trigger warnings is, what I'm about to disclose is about uh, childhood sexual abuse. For me, uh, my trauma started when I was sexually abused as a child. I have to note every single time, not by a family member, because it's really important that I, I kind of say that. And uh, that led me to live a life that I guess I never would have lived if I had not had the complete and utter misfortune is not the right word, um, heartbreaking reality of, of what actually did happen to me in my childhood. So it has meant that I have lived a very different life. 
I have felt shame heavily. Uh, I've wanted to people please. I've wanted to kind of fit within this safe parameter of being judged less, uh, being looked at less, um, wanting to look like the stereotypical wonderful parent that nobody kind of questions and um, feeling worried or overthinking about some of the things that maybe I do or say and I kind of got to a point where I I stopped doing that and I did the complete role reversal where I really just laid out everything about me and I started doing that on my online profile of of wanting to kind of shrug off that level of shame around who I am about the fact that my body might not look like you know a Victoria's Secrets model or the fact that I suffer with my mental health and that it's at times a massive battle for me I've not wanted to hide behind these things anymore because I guess I've let them rule all of my life. And I think if you sit down as an individual and you think about that horrible, all gut-churning feelings that you have, like that I can't answer that because it's so, so, so individual. Um, but working out why it's there, where is it coming from? Why do I feel that way? And leaning into this level of compassion for yourself, uh, I think is probably one of the things that I have been crap at (laughs) up until these last 18 months where I've had really, really intense therapy. And I have learned about myself that actually giving myself a level of compassion when I have that, oh, look at me, I feel gross, or oh, I just said the wrong thing, or oh my God, that person's judging me, or it could be even shame about how my home looks, whatever it might be. I have to go, but this is where I'm at right now. And actually, that's okay. We are here, we are learning, and we are evolving. We all are, you know, every single day we wake up and we're learning something new about ourselves. It might be big, it might be small. Um, And I think learning what that that is, and then leaning into that very gently is no easy feat. It sounds easy on paper, but you know, I I literally just come out of 17 months of um, therapy and EMDR. So it's taken a lot of work for me to to reach this place of understanding what my shame looks like and, and how it's made me feel. I know you mentioned the kind of switch when you started posting online, just being like, really brutally honest what triggered that what made you go like I'm done feeling like this and feeling like I have to live up to these impossible standards I'm quite an impulsive person (laughs) so um many years ago when I started knees deep in life on Facebook I I shared a lot of the stuff that I already do I I was sharing it amongst my friends on my own personal page and someone said Laura you're really funny like the way that you put things together is funny you should kind of like you should do it as a thing like I know people that can be quite successful with this sort of stuff and I was like oh okay I'll give it a go and I very impulsively created Knee Deep in Life um and initially that shame element of the fear of how other people would see me, how they would judge me, how they would look at me really made me hold back on everything that's always been inside me. This wanting, this freeing, like, I don't care. I just want to, I don't want to be held back by the shackles of, of everything I'm terrified of anymore. I just want to be free of it. It was all there, but the things that were stopping me were, the ideas of everybody else like and it we all hear it 
it could be a parent, it could be a friend, it could be a partner, it, it could be a work colleague of that person that goes, do you really think you should be doing that? Have you thought about your parents? Have you thought about your family? Have you thought about your children? And then that kind of freezes you in this place of, I can't move forward, I can't do this because of that person. And so I played around a lot, sort of dancing around this idea of wanting to be more honest and being a little bit more honest, but still being very careful. And then as time went on, I think I probably learned to just kind of wear the shoes that I had made for myself. And and as things have progressed and as it has grown bigger and it has had more success, I'm still learning. I'm very much learning on the job with regards to how I how I do this and and how to continually work on those feelings because they don't just disappear when you learn about them. You learn about them and then when they do kind of appear and you feel them, you can acknowledge that and go, okay, you know what, I'm feeling this right now, that fear of rejection, of abandonment, because I don't want to lose what I've got, but I'm not going to lose what I've got. And just really gently reminding myself of the journey that I've been on and what made me lead to this and and i think it was an element of i am tired of pretending to be somebody that isn't traumatized i'm tired of being somebody that pretends to have her shit together i don't want to be that person anymore she's exhausted and she isn't me and she doesn't feel comfortable and she doesn't feel safe anymore she feels like a big fat lie and so as this process has gone on, like I said, I'm still kind of learning on the job. I think I always will be. I'm just constantly reevaluating where I'm at and where I want to move forward and how I want to move forward. And I think that's a really kind of healthy way to, to live your life, I think. We're all changing all the time. Did anything in particular happen um, that made you sort of realise that it was time to kind of confront what had happened in your childhood? Um, or that you maybe sort of needed support with it? Yeah, so I was very much drop kicked into it. Uh, lockdown last year, which is something I talk about a lot in the book, uh, it, it feels a lot like the elephant in the room because I think many of us, and I can speak for myself certainly, I um, I became obsessive about watching the stats every day. Sometimes it was multiple times a day. It wasn't healthy. I was having to homeschool both the kids uh, both of my children I should say uh, my husband was still going to work so he was a frontline worker and I felt trapped I felt suffocated I was really really struggling but nobody else seemed to be struggling I'm sorry if you can hear my dog in the background by the way you know god forbid he be more than two meters oh, away good. from me <laughs> I promise you he's fine and um, <laughs> and I I could see what looked to be on social media, this real idea of other people just being like, you know what, I love Zoom parties and I love working from home and I love being with my children. And I didn't feel any of that. And January of last year, um, I I just wasn't coping. I was crying a lot. I, I just couldn't, I couldn't grasp life. And so I went to the doctor and I said, look, I went in for a stomach ache actually and I said while I was there I started crying and I said I think I need my antidepressants which I'd previously been on uh with with my youngest son I had post well it was diagnosed as postnatal depression but it turned out to be a reoccurring issue of the trauma of my childhood which I know now um so 
I was put on this medication and this medication, this antidepressant, it triggered a reaction in me that was panic of, oh my God, what if this is going to be difficult like it was last time? I read all of the side effects and I was thrown into this real deep, dark panic but I didn't recognize it as panic and I thought I was going to die. I stopped sleeping. I stopped eating and I was exhausted and it literally even being out of bed hurt. I, I, I it was like I had the flu, but I didn't, it, I, I couldn't move. I was so just, just completely at the mercy of what, what was going on. And I spoke to, um, doctors, mental health nurses, so many different medical professionals and they all just kept saying keep taking the medication you've just got to ride it out you know it'll take about a month and you'll be better and i was two days in and by the third day um i think it was about half past 11 at night i came downstairs to my husband having had medication just ran down my throat different kinds and i said i want to die i can't do this anymore and i said i i need someone needs to take me away like i i wanted to be sectioned because at the time ignorantly being sectioned which by the way for anybody that doesn't know is no walk in the park it is pretty brutal uh it's not a nice experience for anybody that's gone through it Uh, that was that for me was felt like the only thing that i had left Uh, i called 999 the ambulance came out they didn't want to take me anywhere they said look you've just got to ride again same information you just got to ride this out you've just got to wait for the medication to start working which is so brutally cruel in my opinion that somebody could be having such an adverse reaction i went from crying and being like i'm not coping to being suicidal based on a tablet that i started taking and being told you just got to keep taking it i went to the hospital because i had an irregular heartbeat they tapped every vein in my body they sent me through numerous tests and the the doctor that was covering amy said Whatever it is that you're worrying about right now, just don't worry about it because it's not your problem. What's going on in the world is not your problem. Well, that didn't work. (laughs) Just FYI to anybody (laughs) listening, when someone's worried and you go, just don't worry about it, it doesn't fucking work. (laughs) That doesn't work at all. It's actually shit advice. Um, And then that that led on to, so it's quite an elongated answer. You said, what happened? I'm like, well... And then at 12 p.m., uh, <laughs> that, that steamrolled me into a complete and utter crisis breakdown. Panic attacks, it wasn't so much of like, oh, I had 12 panic attacks a day. I can't even tell you from one ending to the next beginning because sometimes the gaps were so minute. And we always see panic attacks as someone in the corner with a paper bag, and it's not like that. Um, I genuinely thought this is it. I will never get better. I will die this way. And I multiple times just thought, I mean, I I just want to die. Like dying would be so much better than what I'm going through right now. Uh, My husband had to take uh, four months off work to look after me, care for our children. And there were points where I wasn't even leaving the house. And the one thing that everybody, including all the medical professionals, were saying is, we can get you onto iTalk, which, as we all know, has like a hundred-year waiting list because it's completely underfunded. Uh, but you need to get into therapy. And I, I've always been scared of therapy because I knew I had so much shit to unpack 
that my biggest fear around it was it would change me as a person. I won't be funny anymore. I won't be Laura. I won't be this person that I've been. So the only way I know how to survive is to be this traumatized person. And I incorrectly linked trauma with funny, uh, which can happen. Um, you know, you can link trauma with another part of your personality when in actual fact trauma is a completely separate entity. So I initially saw somebody who was massively underqualified to look after me. And over the space of sort of six weeks, I think it was, I just gradually got worse. Uh, like I said, I stopped leaving the house. I was having panic attack after panic attack. And I was going from the extreme high of, no, I'm okay. I've sorted it out now. I get it. Within half an hour, literally being plunged into another horrific panic attack. So that was fun. Um, and then my friend who is a psychologist, she spoke to me one day. She's like, how are you doing? And I'd really locked out everybody. I'd removed all social media. I turned WhatsApp off. I didn't speak to anyone. And she said, how are you doing? And I said to her, you know, not good. And she said immediately, you need to stop speaking to a therapist. She is not qualified to deal with whatever it is you're going through. And she found me the person who I have literally just finished working with uh, doing EMDR. So it wasn't so much a choice. I mean, there was a choice in it, but I didn't feel like I had much of a choice. It was either that or die. Um, and in going through the, the process of therapy, that it was the elephant in the room. Having to speak about my childhood abuse was the most important thing that I did to start aiding my recovery but it felt so daunting. As somebody that's lived with it for as long as she can remember, it's really, really horrific to think, I have to now communicate all of this stuff to somebody else. And yet, as I started to go through the process, I was like, okay, actually, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. I'm not, I'm still me, I'm still Laura, but this is, I'm making sense of stuff now and I can care for myself better and I can, nurture myself in a completely different way I'm able to forgive myself for so much more um and I would not still be here today I would have without a shadow of a doubt ended my life last year if I hadn't have found my therapist who I thank for so much so 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 much of my survival I'm so glad that you found EMDR but can I just say that story is so frustrating there's so many fuck-ups What, yeah. How are you not? Um, I mean, um, are you still angry? I would be furious. You know what? I looked up my medical records the other day because you can access now, can't you? Your doctor's records. And I I scrolled all the way back to that particular medical uh, incident, and I read the phone call of from the doctor's surgery. On the Monday, now I was discharged on the Monday, having been admitted at early hours of Monday morning. And the person who I spoke to, who, to be honest with you, had the worst bedside manner. He was so flippant. And I remember sobbing. I don't even think I was sobbing at that point. So I think I was beyond it. But I remember saying to him, I am so sorry that I am wasting NHS time. I know how hard you guys are fighting against COVID right now. And the last thing you need is someone like me. Like, I felt like that much of a burden because I was just basically being made to feel like I was a hypochondriac. And he said nothing. He literally, there was just nothing. No, please don't ever worry about it. And I needed reassurance, which, to be honest with you, I shouldn't have been looking for because I should have had it in myself. I just didn't. 
And I looked back at that phone call that he had with me and his report of how he left that call was um, severe anxiety, uh, have decided a care plan, no follow-up required. Now, I can tell you there was no plan put in place for our, for my care in any way, shape or form. I was told to go to therapy and that was it. And the thing is, it took one doctor, and it's the same bloody doctor that saved me when I had the the breakdown that I had after I had my youngest child. I suffered 11 weeks of being bounced from one doctor to the other, just basically making me feel like a, an over-anxious mother. And it was the same doctor on both occasions who took me under his wing and helped me and reassured me and literally spoke to me whenever I needed him to and gave me so much care and love, not love, but it was love because it was like, we're going to get you better, Laura. And this is the second time he's done that for me. And I feel devastated at how many people are experiencing this shit show of people, of the NHS not being trauma informed. And I don't know how many people listening to this right now will know this, but if you are a survivor of trauma, I have complex trauma, and that complex trauma is crucially important to be expressed to anybody within the medical profession. Now, I've never, ever felt like I deserve or need to acknowledge the fact that I am a survivor of sexual abuse. But if I have a male doctor and the male doctor insists that there is no other person to see me, I can, within my rights, say I, I am a person with complex trauma. I need you to meet my needs. My needs are this. For me, going for blood tests, this last 18 months, I've had to go for a couple of different blood tests. They're massively triggering because they remind me of being admitted into hospital and then literally having to get every single vein they possibly can. It's really difficult. And getting blood out of me is difficult anyway. I just have crap veins. And I have had to fight for the acknowledgement that I don't go to the nurses that are not qualified. I need to see somebody that knows what they're doing so that when I have a blood test, they actually genuinely get my blood and it's all over and done with. So if you're listening to this and you are somebody that is that is troubled by any form of trauma and it is something that you live with, flashbacks, PTSD, anything like that, you are within your rights to ask for a trauma-informed service because the NHS is meant to be and is trying to be more trauma-informed. I think that links in with shame, to be honest, because it's kind of feeling like, oh, I don't want to burden anyone, I don't want to be an issue for anyone. So you don't, even if you have that knowledge, there's that fear of, you know, even asking or admitting it. Is that something that you've had to kind of address through therapy and learn how to... Well, it's kind of, it's, it's frustrating that you have to advocate for yourself in that sense, but is that something that you've had to learn how to do? You know what, it's something I'm still having to work on because I, I'm really great at people pleasing. <laughs> if there was an Olympic medal for people pleasing, I'm pretty sure I'd get gold. Um, so that's a really big thing for me that I have to work very hard on is going, I, I need this for myself. And I deserve it. I'm not being difficult. I am not uh, creating an issue. I am just trying to look after myself the best way possible. And that's okay. So I think the hardest thing about 
suffering with any form of mental health disorder where and disorder i don't like the word disorder because i think it's challenging it's it's kind of making it a thing when in actual fact a lot of uh, mental health issues stem from trauma uh, or can do and i'm not in any uh, um medical capacity to be able to confirm the ins and outs of that but from what i've read there's a lot linked to trauma and mental health god knows mine is linked to trauma and i've learned that and i've accepted that but i think the the overall reality of being that person is you have to learn to advocate for yourself and it's frustrating and it's unfair and it's cruel because it takes a lot of guts to have to continually hold your hand up and say I need this and sometimes when you're not strong enough you still have to find the strength to do it and that feels just wickedly cruel. And I wanted to ask as well um, looking back at that sort of that the most difficult time that you went through the the really sort of difficult time um, now that you're sort of doing a lot better do you have any thoughts about it about maybe when I was listening to it, I was wondering, like, do you think that maybe you were put on the wrong medication or it was side effects or do you have, I'm just, I guess I'm, what I'm asking is, do you feel like you've got more insight into what happened um, or do you, would you rather kind of just kind of move on to the future now? No, not at all. I think like I'm really able to reflect with so much more compassion for myself back then. Like, Jesus, Laura, how how could you have fought so hard for so long and still believed that you were the problem? Um, the medication side of things, I really do truly believe that they fucked up royally. Um, I think that I, again, I'm not medically trained and I don't wish to comment on antidepressants because it's so, so individual. But I have learned that the reason for my crisis points and the reason for the things that have happened to me have been based on previous traumatic events. Now, I have had a breakdown with both of my children being born. I have had multiple breakdowns throughout my upbringing. I have self-harmed. I have done so many different things, never acknowledged as breakdowns. But the thing is, every single time I have one, they get gradually worse. And the last one being the most terrifying and the thing that I find incredibly frustrating is I was at one point prescribed three different kinds of medication and it was basically just to stop me, you know, feeling, I guess, trying to stabilise me. And I get that the need for that was so important, but was it right? No, it certainly wasn't. And I think the biggest issue was nobody really sat down and listened. Nobody really sat down and went hang on a minute, let's do a timeline. When did this happen? It happened the moment I started taking the antidepressants. Hmm, right, okay. Nobody ever did that. They just kept saying, you've just got to keep taking it. Just wait, just just wait until it kicks in. Now, when you're three days into something that's making you feel like you are having an out-of-body experience and someone says you've got to wait four to five weeks, that's a hell of a long time. Um, so I think that my condition, my mental health, where I was at was poorly treated and incorrectly medicated because what I needed was urgent trauma care and that wasn't given to me. It's so frustrating that they kept saying just keep going because I've I, you know I'm on uh, a really common SSRI 
Um, and I remember reading the side effects and one of them is this could trigger suicidal thoughts. And the fact that they didn't immediately go like, oh, okay, maybe that could be what's happening here is is terrifying and it's so dangerous. It's absolutely awful. Yeah, and I, I don't want to, you know, do down the NHS or the doctors because that's another thing that, you know, everybody was impacted by COVID. And the worst part was, from a medical professional point of view, they didn't get to go, nah, I don't want to deal with it today. You know, they were frontline. They, they physically got to see people dying of it. And the impact of that, I cannot begin to fathom. I cannot begin to understand or want to understand how traumatizing that must still be for them and the PTSD they're probably living with over that. The biggest issue we have, and it's it's no hidden secret, is that our NHS is massively underfunded, completely and utterly overlooked. And so what we're expecting of doctors and nurses is something that, you know, even a superhuman would struggle with because their load is so heavy. They have so many patients and literally a finite period of time to be able to deal with them. I'm not excusing the care that I had. There's no dis- there's no disguising the fact that it was completely disgusting. You know, at one point someone was saying, maybe we should just put you on a um, antipsychotic. Now I'm on citalopram. I was on citalopram before. And the whole reason why all of this happened was because I was panicking about the side effects. And so by panicking about those side effects, I almost manifested them. And that's, you know, it's not that I made them up. They were there. They were very, very real. They were terrifying. So how would I ever really truly be able to give an honest answer as to whether that reaction was to do with the medication or was it to do with my PTSD? I wouldn't be able to tell you. I don't know that anybody could. Is it a combination? Who knows? But I know that it was just so overlooked and it was just very much you're patted on the head of side effects are bad but once you're on it you're on it and it, it it didn't work for me and I shouldn't have been put on them I should have just been dealt with for the crisis I was in at the time what you've really highlighted there I think with your story is actually just the way that, and I think lots of listeners will have been through this um, is the way that it's actually quite common for people to be given pills first mm. but then you have a long wait for counselling rather than it being the other way around. I also wonder how much lower the crisis statistics uh, or even the severity of mental health if there was earlier intervention, if there was a better system of therapy. And I think that us, us Brits, we're really resistant to therapy. I used to be through fear. And we always joke about the Americans. We're like, oh, God, they've all got a shrink. But in actual fact, good for them. The biggest issue we have is we don't have early intervention. We don't normalise the idea of therapy because it's just so much easier to pop a pill. When in actual fact, popping a pill, popping antidepressants, is it's very complicated for some people. Some people can literally take them and have zero side effects. And God, I envy them. I envy that ability to be able to take that medication and not overthink every single element of it. I am still on my antidepressants now. And I am having to work out what my next route is. And I'm actually having to pay privately to speak to a psychiatrist because I want to make sure that this is done correctly. I need to make sure that the next person I speak to really understands my trauma, how I move forward and what I do. 
And the most tragic thing about that is I can't trust my general GPs to be able to do that because I don't know that they would be equipped enough to be able to give me the correct amount of care to help me through that process. Now, I have that luxury. And the frustrating thing is a lot of people who deserve that luxury do not have it. I think also your story also kind of highlights the idea that, you know, the first meds obviously very clearly weren't right for you, but also the first counsellor might not necessarily be right for you. The first psychotherapist might not be right for you. And I'm so glad you found the right person. Um, But, you know, for some people it can take several goes, you know, try after try. You also mentioned in there um, EMDR therapy. Are you all right to tell us a bit about that and how that's helped you? Yeah, of course, absolutely. I think it's a a therapy that is kind of unknown to a lot of people. Uh, It's relatively new, I guess, in relation to other forms of therapy. And it works quite successfully in people with PTSD. Um, So uh, trauma-based kind of uh, injuries, I guess, if you want to call it. So so, (laughs) injuries, it's not like you've fallen over and scraped your knee but you know what I mean um so basically for me and there are different forms of it with EMDR some people it's not with tapping but for me it was with tapping so I would uh put my hands into the form of a butterfly and just below my collarbone I would tap each side quite deliberately but fast and while doing that I would have to go back to a traumatic event now you have to walk yourself but you know multiple times over the last 17 months I've had to walk myself back to okay, so what's the newest thing that you can think of that's traumatizing? And then what, what's the next thing? And you literally walk your mind back. And whenever you get to the youngest version of you, whatever that might be, you then work on that. You then work on trigger points. So you work on things that you struggle with, work on things that you're scared of, but they have to be debilitating enough to be acknowledged or feeling like they need to be worked on you know it's not like I'm scared of spiders I'm sure maybe you could do it on EMDR I don't know I didn't I am still scared of spiders um but there are lots of different well I say lots of different ways there are different ways of doing it and for me it was about that and it's about the kind of almost desensitizing you from the trauma so that the trauma is not so um stuck I guess and being able to acknowledge it in a very different way so it's actually airing it it's actually reliving it which is traumatic in itself Uh, but by the time you've gone through that process it actually removes so much of the heaviness of it because you can separate it from being a past event and not a current event that you are subconsciously kind of like living uh, through fear through shame shame massively impacts so many elements of our life and and how unconsciously as well all the time so um yeah emdr has worked really well for me and i know there's some people that say it didn't work for them and that is the worst part about therapy is you go in blind and you don't know and like you you said you know you never know whether that person's going to work for you and as my friend said who's a psychologist she said you have to be really honest and if it doesn't work within the first session any good or second session or third session any good therapist will always acknowledge listen and understand the fact that you don't want to work with them and that we'll move on from that um because it's it's so important you find that level of trust in that person 
for me, I have had a full level of transference or therapeutic love to my therapist. I've had to work through all of that of being like, are you sure we can't be friends? Are you sure you're also not in love with me? Because I'm in love with you. Um, and she's had to repeatedly say, it's fine, Laura. No, <laughs> you know, I am just your therapist. But it shows a very strong uh, connection with someone that you have trusted with every element of your life who hasn't judged you and who has just validated you. And I think we're hard pushed in life to find somebody that can do that for us, completely validate us with no shame and hear and listen and sit and go, okay, that was, you know what, that was really difficult. And I'm so sorry you went through that. Um, it's, yeah, it's so, it's so lovely to sit there and just hear someone say, it's okay that you find that really difficult. Um, the power of that is huge, actually. It has been for me anyway. I want to go back to something you said um, kind of briefly where you went, you were worried that if you kind of confronted your trauma and let go of it, you wouldn't be yourself anymore or you wouldn't be funny or you wouldn't do, you know, all of this kind of stuff that you were holding on to. Can you tell us that that wasn't the case? Because <laughs> I think for people listening, I think so many people will relate to that. And I think they'll have that kind of similar fear of like, well, if I go to therapy or if I do this, I'll lose my spark or like I'll lose who I am. Can you confirm that that isn't the case? <laughs> No, no, it's not. Because I think that we get tangled up with this idea that this thing inside of us, whatever it is we carry, the pain, the hurt, the, the trauma, I use the word trauma all the time, people are bloody sick of it. All of that is based on something that happened to us, but wasn't our fault. And it's okay to go through a process of understanding mourning I have mourned so much in the last 17 18 months of my life how much of my life was completely disrupted as a direct result of everything that happened to me as a child and therapy seemed like um the bad guy almost the fear of but what if I don't find the right person but what if it doesn't work but what if it makes me worse and the, I think the biggest thing that I see now is one of the biggest things I hear a lot and it sounds like I'm going door to door preaching to people to go to therapy it's not it's just I'm very open to the idea of therapy now and I've talked to a lot of people about it is people go yeah but I don't want them to start something and then be like oh your hour's up you've got to go now we're done we're done now and I said but if you find yourself a good therapist which by the way you must make sure you do nobody would do that to you because a therapist is not there. They are not there or designed to be there to make you worse. What they are there to do is, first of all, and above all else, find some really important resourcing for you. And when I say resourcing, I mean, before you start any form of therapy, it's so important that you learn some tools of how to look after yourself throughout this therapeutic journey, whatever that might be whether it be um, talking therapy or EMDR, whatever it might be, it's really important to initially start off with, okay, we're going to put these things in place now so that when therapy ends and you feel you're struggling, you're, you're, you're not in a good place, these things are going to be here to remind you that you can keep safe while you're not in therapy. So for me, they were massively important and it was 
that grounding technique of just reminding myself everything is okay. It's okay to feel these things. Let's go and do this, whatever it might be. Uh, you know, although there are, are so many different distraction techniques, I guess you could call them. But for me, it was gardening, it was coloring in, it was diamond art. I mean, fuck my life. I'm not even 40. I never thought I'd get into diamond art, but there I was doing a diamond art giraffe. Wait, what's diamond art? Is oh that the one God. you stick the... Yes. Like... Don't, ah. don't do it. You'll lose yourself to it. No, I, God. I think that sounds great. <laughs> it sounds like a good way to spend an afternoon, honestly. Oh, trust me, you'll spend more than a bloody afternoon at it. <laughs> I mean, these things, I, I finished them and my husband looked at me, you know, like our, our the way that we, des- uh, our artwork, whatever you want to call it, the way that our house is, is des- done, it's very much not a diamond artwork kind of home. And he was looking at it like, oh, what are you going to do with that now? Like, I'm so happy that you've done that. It's taken you 40 hours. And look at that monstrosity. But it was really, really good. And it's um, it's very, very good at just kind of giving you that opportunity to go, this is me. This is my time. This is my space. This is where I look after myself. The other thing was yoga. Now, I have always taken the piss out of people that do yoga because I always thought, what a twat. I'll probably fart. And I didn't. I've not once farted, uh, much to my delight, because it isn't a, a massive class full of people. But I, I've really lent into this idea that when I'm on that mat, it doesn't matter whether I'm really shit at it. It doesn't matter whether I don't hold the balance. And my yoga instructor, Lisa, is fantastic at what she does. And she always tells us, just arrive as you are in that moment. If you could do it last week, don't bloody worry. If you can't do it this week, just be here, be present and forgive yourself. And that's been so massively important to me. And I have really done things throughout this process of looking after myself in between sessions that I never in a million fucking years would have said I would have done ever because I was I was the bastard that used to take the piss out of those people. And now I've learned, actually, I should shut my mouth and give it a go before I uh, before I judge. With your book, why did you want to focus specifically on shame? Um, so because I realized I've lived shame for so much of my life and I, even when I was doing, uh, knee deep in life and because knee deep in life is, and to anybody listening that hasn't got a clue what it is, I'm not offended. Don't worry. There's lots of us bastards on the internet and we're all cunts, aren't we? I mean, can I say the word cunt? You said swearing's fine, but that's a big word. I think it's the first, is that the first cunt ever? Yeah, I'm quite impressed because I'm pretty sure that is the first one. So congratulations. <laughs> I got it in there right towards the end, but I got it in. Um, you know, I <laughs> I was saying, yeah, I'm one of them. I'm one of them on the internet. But I, I am quite garish. I'm quite out there. And people have always said, oh, my God, I wish I had your confidence. And I'm like, oh, I don't have any confidence. I'm a really fucked up person that lives with horrific anxiety that something terrible is going to happen. And then I, like, I went through the process of everything that happened last year. And I realized that even while I was talking all of this horseshit over the internet about how to be more you, how to be more accepting, I wasn't living it. I wasn't actually living the life that I was expecting other people to live. And... I have really worked hard on releasing all of that shame in my life that I, I've unconsciously lived. And I can't even believe it. I think since I've delved into it and I've really looked into it and I've, I've read about it and I've understood it, not just in myself, but I see it 
I see it among other people. I go, oh, Christ on a bike. We're, we are literally expected to live within the confines of our shame on a daily basis. And we don't even fucking realize it. And it just blows my mind that we're all still living in this really like shrouded idea of, but are you doing that for you? Are you actually being that person because you want to be that person? Or are you being that person because that's what you know people are expecting you to behave like? And God knows that's what I did. And I, I really was heavily criticised when I first started doing Knee Deep in Life by friends and family who uh, some I still speak to, some I have nothing to do with anymore. And they were very judgmental of the fact that I swore too much or that, oh, there's too much of your body. Oh, my God. Why, why are you doing have you thought about your? Have you thought about the kids? Like, why are you getting your body out? Because it's a body. Why Why are we shaming a woman for how her body looks? Like, if I, if I was a runway model, which FYI, a lot of them are mothers, do you think their parenting is ever called into question? I, I personally haven't. I've never seen that being called into question. And yet when you don't look like that, when you look a little bit more like me, I'm a size 16, I love carbohydrates, absolutely adore Cadbury's. I am, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not a runway model. God knows I wouldn't be able to walk in a pair of heels either. So my ability to parent comes into play so much more. And it's, you know what, it's funny, Britney Spears this week, I don't know if you guys follow Britney Spears or have followed the story of her and how devastating it's been. But her husband, ex-husband, has publicly come out to say, you know what, uh, our children don't want to see their mum at the moment because everything she's putting on Instagram. And I, I have seen people clawing at her like, oh, yeah, we knew this would happen because you bear your body. And I'm like, fucking hell. So she's a woman who is not allowed to show her body or celebrate the fact that she is free of something that she has lived in miserably for 13 years and you are now calling her a shit mum based on the fact that she goes topless on the beach and puts her hands over her boobs, that she can't be proud of her body. If we cannot, as a community, as a society worldwide, see the issue behind treating women like that, and and because she has had a troubled back past, like past it almost becomes easy to label her a bad mother because... It's it's kind of the undertone of, well, how has she been able to parent her children during that process? Well, how the fuck are you able to parent your kids? If, has anyone ever asked you? You know, we spend so much time on the internet judging people and we spend a hell of a lot less time actually looking at ourselves and the way that we're living. And I'm, I'm sick of it. I'm really, really pig sick of this idea that we have to live up to this expectation of someone else. And so when that process of writing that book, the book was not designed to, to talk about any of the stuff it was. It was meant to be about female empowerment, which it massively is. But I started writing it and my editor, I would speak to her a lot. And she said, Laura, you're, there's something here and you're not writing about it. And I don't know what it is. And I was just like, Bleh. I just got it all out on paper. She said, it doesn't have to make sense or just write it. And I wrote it and she called me back. And she was like, fucking hell. I mean, that's not what I was expecting. And I was like, but that's what it is. That's my block. And she was like, are you happy to run with this? And I was like, well, I, I was still waiting for someone's permission to tell me I was allowed to talk about it. And that's that just goes to show the magnitude of, of the shame around me 
as a survivor of abuse, still waiting for someone to tell me I'm allowed to talk about my experience. And that's why, because shame is just entrenched in everything we do, how we think and how we behave and how we live. You can't remove it. It's really important to acknowledge it. I think my final question is, how can we all kind of learn to let go of shame, especially on the internet and in our current society where we're being hit with constant messages that we should feel ashamed, that we should feel this shame and carry it with us? Uh, For me personally, the biggest, most powerful one is learning self-compassion and working on your self-esteem because self-compassion and self-esteem are massively important tools in not only accepting who you are, because if you have no self-esteem, you are not going to accept the person that you are and you're constantly going to be striving to be better because you're going to believe the person you are is not good enough. So that that first thing is really important. Working on your self-esteem, something I've had to work on. I looked at the list of what characterize the big word that you know that works out what you are uh i looked at the list of um things that you would say is low self-esteem i ticked every single one of them and that was devastating so i started reading a lot on self-esteem and how to change it it's very easy it was not easy it's a bloody process but you can start you could start right now this minute if you want to and that is hugely hugely rewarding but you've got to keep at it and you've got to keep working on it and not give up the next thing is the self-compassion um self-compassion of you know what i feel this way and that's okay but i'm working on it and i'm gonna get there speak to yourself like you're a child speak to yourself like one of your children or speak to yourself as a child like you would have wanted to have been spoken to as a child and it's it, it sounds so simple But the more you do it, the more comfort you have and the more strength you get from that. And the other thing is, is to disengage from the bullshit on social media is to not pick up the gossip magazines where people's cellulite is being picked out and and picked on. Is to um, really try and move away from the diet industry and how toxic that place is, because that is the biggest way to shame a woman of her size, how she looks and how she could be better if she just tried harder. Uh, Even though the diet industry is absolutely designed to make you fail because they want to keep taking your money and make you believe you're not good enough the way you are. So I think that social media and the people we put ourselves around, our friendship circles, having strong boundaries, these things are so hugely important to relinquish yourself off that shame because when you start to surround yourself with like-minded people who genuinely 100% care for every single part of you you don't feel that shame because you are surrounded by love and validation um it's massively important and hugely rewarding as well because if there's one thing I can say to every single listener right now is no matter where you are whatever it is you might be going through no matter how lonely you feel in it you are not alone and you will get through it. And it is tough, but you are so much stronger than you ever give yourself credit for. Um, and you deserve to have all of those really wonderful people in your life that remind you of how great you are. So this is goodbye from mentally yours. So go away, enjoy your day, get on with all your chores from mentally, 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 mentally yours. Mentally yours
If you've been affected by any of the issues we've been chatting about today, please give the Samaritans a ring on 116123. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe to our channel and perhaps even go back and listen to some old episodes. We have many of them. Also, you can get in contact with us. We have a lovely Facebook group, which is called Mentally Yours. And we're also on Twitter at MentallyYRS. See you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.